Did I answer your question? Probably a lot longer than you needed. This is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. Sometimes you are just destined to meet someone on your path. And I believe that was my destiny to meet our today's guest, James Woolman. We're almost introduced to each other by our common Greek friend, Alexandros. When before it happened, James wrote to me to tell me about his plans of creating a worldwide organization called WXO. We will unpack that abbreviation in a moment. James is a cultural commentator, trend forecaster, and an international best-selling author of two books, Stuff Occasion and Time and How to Spend It. James is also a contributing editor for IDEO and had shared his opinions on the pages of the New York Times, the Financial Times, The Economist, and Wired. Damn it, I'm jealous. James runs boutique innovation and trend forecasting company, The Future is Here, and he's a co-founder and the spiritus movers on the earlier mentioned WXO, or in full, the World Experience Organization, created to connect and provoke the pioneers of the experience economy, to grow the experience economy, and also to shine a spotlight on exceptional experience design across the world. And I'm super proud to be a member of the founding circle of WXO and uh, super excited to have you, James, with us today. Thank you. Super proud to have you on board. The number of times that people refer to your work is uh, really cool. Think about when Joe Pine did his 25 years since his book came out. Yes. There were two books that he mentioned in that and one was yours and one was mine. So yes. uh, Wow, you didn't yes. tell me about this, Aga. <laughs> Come on. You tell me about, you know, like daily stuff and you forgot to mention that yeah i promised joe to write an, an academic article about the book and i feel guilty because i haven't found the time to get myself to do it yet <laughs> but okay let's not go that direction but i do have a question that relates to joe and his work and this is the question like how did you stumble upon experience economy and what's the story there huh. good question thanks for having me first of all really <laughs> nice to be here so i became a trend forecaster in 2004, uh, worked for a company called The Future Laboratory, based in London, but global clients, and worked from them on and off from 04 through to 2013, at times working actually at the company and other times working freelance for them. And um, I think the first time I came across was 2007, through two pieces of work. One was a piece on the future of men for Gillette, and the other thing was a piece on the future of retail for BMW. Uh-huh. Mm. And one of the things that we wrote about was called More Than a Store, about how retailers, especially in this burgeoning world of online shopping, needed to give people a reason to come to the store and therefore provide experiences. And then, so working on and off for the company and thinking about the future of all sorts of things, I came to really, and this is culminated in this book, a Stuffocation or in Polis, Szczęcio zmęczenia. Rzeczo zmęczenie? Rzeczo zmęczenie. That's a really good... Oh, that's an awesome translation. Oh, really good one. I'm impressed. Me, obviously. But yeah, that was the book in Polish. And that book was my attempt to figure out how the world was changing. And so one of the big problems is the problem of materialism. You know, um, materialism as a value system which has underpinned consumerism has been 
I think arguably the best idea that humans have ever had. Now that's a massive statement and obviously untrue, but certainly if you think about what consumerism has done, go back to a hundred years ago to 1921, from there till today, consumerism underpinned by materialism has changed standards of living in an unprecedented way in human history, but it also came with problems. And so as I was doing my work, figuring out what the future held, I came to realize there's a problem. We need to solve it. Consumerism is awesome. Materialism has some major problems like the problem with the environment. And I came to believe more and more that the answer could be in experiences. And at the same time, I think just doing trend, my work was in trends. What's happening in Peru? What's happening in Seoul? What's happening in Australia? What's happening around? What, what are consumers doing? That was, you know, mm -hmm. consumer insight. What are people doing that's new? And the word that came up again and again was, wow, they're doing something with experiences. What you're writing in Staffocation is that the benchmark for success is GDP really, right? And this not necessarily is true because GDP doesn't mean happiness and doesn't mean quality of life. So do we need a different measure? We definitely need a different measure. GDP has been awesome. It was created by a, a Russian guy in about 1933, really, and that became the thing. It was in the teeth of the economic depression in the States. This guy called Simon Kuznets, who was the, the lead creator of it. And it took about 25 years to so about 1958 that most countries adopted GDP, GNP, or national in, this form of national income accounting. Um, and it was particularly in the West rather than on the other side of the Iron Curtain. But it, it worked because we could figure out how countries are getting better at getting things done. And I think it's reasonable to say that it wasn't really until the early 70s that the people started to realize that there was a problem with it. And this was the work of a guy called Richard Easterlin, who's a sociologist who became known as the Easterlin paradox. And what he realized, he did research in a whole bunch of countries in Europe and the States, etc., was that rising GDP did not lead to rising happiness. And that was a really kind of strange thing, because for economists, of course, Happiness is a different kind of concept. You know, it's things that they can definitely measure. And I had once had a conversation with Richard Thaley, you know, the guy that won the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. for economics. The only time the two of us have sat down and had a glass of wine together. But I like to mention this in conversations because, you know, <laughs> I've, I've come close to greatness. And he said to me, it was, it was a wonderful, he said, look, you know, he said, because I was trying to push this idea of we should measuring well-being rather than GDP. And he said, look, he, he said, I've been having this argument with Danny, Daniel Kahneman, to, mm -hmm. to you know, mid yeah. like to me. drop another I mean, name, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, I mean, they're close friends. So it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's fine for him to call him Danny. I don't think that's, he said, you know, I've been disagreeing with Danny about this for 25 years. He said, you can measure widgets, but you can't measure utils. And I mm -hmm. have this in one of my little notebooks and it's, you know, from having this conversation with him. And this is another thing. So uh, I think it was after the Second World War, maybe around the time of the Second World War, maybe before, that the US president had this thing called the Council of uh, Economic Advisors. Mm -hmm. And I believe, and I saw actually, I think it may have been Daniel Kahneman who said that they should do it, is that they should have a Council of Psychological Advisors. And I think it's not that economics will go away. Mm -hmm. But I think just as economics has been hugely important and will remain hugely important, I think the next social science to be really, really important is psychology. So the US president and other leaders of, of countries should have psychological advisors because we should now we have this 
incredible standards of living, this abundance of stuff, not that it's completely sold for everybody, I recognise that, but for the majority of us in, certainly in the rich countries, you know, we have this, this great situation. The next step, I think, is to move from economics to psychology mm-hmm. and to move from standards of living to quality of life. And my, I've been writing this actually the other day, my fundamental belief is what materialism did for standards of living from 1921 to 2021, I think we have the same opportunity with experientialism, with experiences to transform quality of life between now and 2121. So in a way, until now, the economics were the end that we are going for. And it sounds like you don't want to make it any less important, but it becomes a means to another end now. Yeah, it's a great way of putting it. So economics is quite a new discipline, which is quite a weird idea too, right? So it only became this, I think, in the late 19th century. So the London School of Economics was formed, I think, in 1905 or something. But economics is quite a new kind of concept. And originally in the late 19th century, it was taught by like ministers. (laughs) And it was like a subset of politics and ethics. There's no doubt about getting hold of economics has really been awesome for us. And if you look at well-being and people that want to not care at all about the financial side of things, miss out on the benefits that come with it. And those that, you know, if you look at the well-being departments in government that care, they do look at GDP, especially GDP per capita, because that has an impact on you know, whether somebody has a job or not has a huge impact on their well-being as well. So it's it's a part of it. But if you think about what we want for society and as people, we want some money, but you want the money to do the thing that you want to do. The money in itself is not the, I want to think about Aristotle talks about these things that were, well, this is about intrinsic or ex- extrinsic stuff, right? You know, some things you want for themselves, like going on singing camp. You're not going on singing camp in order to. You're going there for that thing in itself. It has a purity to it. Money is awesome because it means you can buy a camper van. It means you can buy a decent microphone so you can... Yes, we thank you for that. Well, no, but, but also your microphones. You guys in Warsaw, me in London, we can have this kind of connection. We need some stuff to do these things, so we need money for that. So... Economics as an incredibly important support structure to taking us to the next level. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. And I didn't change my mind before, before I asked this question. So <laughs> so I've added nothing. I'm so sorry. I would try harder. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> well done. It was a question. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, big part of having fun with this podcast is that... I would say most of our guests are from Agas Network. So for me, it's actually like, you know, exploring something that I know only a little bit and just connecting with other things in my head. And I like when ideas coalesce and they fit nicely together. So still lots of value just confirming what I said. (laughs) So when you think about the fact that money or financial support is means to an end, this is exactly what your other book is about, right? Time and how to spend it. Because there what you're writing about is about the things that you can get because you have your basic needs 
sustained and satisfied, and therefore you go for other things. I have two in mind. So one is straightforward and it's actually research from people who were on their dying bed, never worrying about the money, but always worrying that they didn't spend more time with others. But there's another thing that I was thinking about, which is the words of Warren Buffett, who said that busy is the new stupid. And that boredom is the thing that is important for creative thought and things like this. And I think that you wrote something that busy is important. It's just that busy about the right things is important. I would like to pick on that and hear whether I misinterpret your words completely <laughs> or <laughs> whether there's something to dig That's into. interesting. I don't think of Warren Buffett as a particularly creative person. I'm not saying that he's not very good at what he does. I don't think I wrote that. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> that's my I, misinterpretation. <laughs> I, but I should say that I was once being interviewed, I was in um, the Netherlands and there was a person who quoted my book to me and she was doing an English translation of the Dutch version that she'd read, which was, uh -huh. of course, a Dutch translation of the English version. So it was English into Dutch into English. And she said these words, I was like, that is beautiful. I never wrote that, but I wish I had. <laughs> I really wish I'd put it that way. I really, whatever, it, yeah, I can't remember what it was now. Uh, um, I read uh, your words, I read the English version. Yeah. So it was the question about whether uh, busy is a good thing. If I were to rephrase it, I would say that we tend to keep ourselves very busy earning more and more money to get more and more things. And sometimes this busyness just takes away all the other things that we could do like singing or rock climbing or playing cajon like Lukas does, just leave. What's a cajon? It's a musical instrument, I'm assuming. Yes, it is. Are you guys a band? A singer and a percussion player is not enough. You sit on it and you play on the front surface. You must have seen it like a flamenco show yeah, or yeah, a tango. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I think you guys should do a, for season 10, you should do your own skit where you're playing the cajon and you're singing. That puts us squarely in the flamenco corner, which is incredibly difficult for percussion players because you have to count to 12 and preferably improvise in that rhythm as well, uh, meter. And for singing, it's something like way yeah. weird. So we need someone who can carry the tune, you know? <laughs> Let's get back to the topic of DC. <laughs> The problem with materialism is, and the construct of our society is kind of the hamster wheel and the, the idea of more, 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 more and bigger, 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 which was, you know, the big message of the second and late part of the 20th century is that you do, you know, that lovely line about how you end up working hard to earn money you don't need, to buy things you don't need, to impress people you don't like. And yeah. don't <laughs> like you, right? It's a great line because... It's true for so many wage slave people that get caught up. And I think, you know, when you come at the importance of status to us as humans is that we keep up, we define and then we redefine who our contemporaries are. It's mm -hmm. one of the problems that we have. As soon as you get a bit of success and things get a bit better, you redefine who you're in competition with. But you've got to do something with your time. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, the candle's burning and one day there'll be no wick left. So you may as well do something while you can see the orange of berries and the green of leaves. I'll be honest, through the last couple of years, I've been through some challenging times. And anyway, however much this is difficult and we all have difficult times, I can see colours and I can hear things. And, you know, one day the light's going to close. 
So busy, I think it's about the right amount of lots of things. And there's a, um, I'm trying to think of what the psych, there's a psychological point of view about this, about how there's nothing that's bad. This might be gestalt. There's nothing in itself that's bad. It's when you do too much of it. And you think beer is a really good example. Who doesn't <laughs> love a beer, right? <laughs> but too much beer is really bad for you. And you could say with the same with running. You know, running, it's really good for you. But too much of it is no good. And so busy could be, let's say you work and you work doing something you enjoy. If you do that and you do 50, 60, 70 hours a week, maybe that's right for you for certain periods. And I think, you know, when people think about busy, they think about worky stuff mm. and they think about doing too much of the wrong kind of thing that leaves you not getting any natural light and, you know, having that blue light on you late at night and getting it all wrong and having too much coffee. But you should definitely do something with your time. Well, we should, shouldn't we? Right. I'll stop there. I hope I've, <laughs> I hope I've given a reasonable answer. It's really interesting how we do not define what busy means. What you said when people say busy, they most of the time they mean the stuff that they don't want to do. And if you go for holidays, like we did, we were really busy all the time. But I wouldn't say our vacation was busy, even though we were not sitting in one spot for too long. Camping's like that, especially if you go camping with kids. You're like trying to stop them burning themselves and falling <laughs> into, you know, and making food. And it's super, super enjoyable. Think about when you play sport or you're singing or you're playing a musical instrument, you are really busy because you're doing something. Yeah, in fact, that's the sign of a good holiday when you're doing something because the sign of a bad holiday is when you're just laying on a beach and it's boring. <laughs> well, on the other hand, I've heard from at least two of our friends that this year they decided to go, like they never did this. They just went for this kind of, you know, beach holidays. Well, for like a week, it wasn't that long. But they said, we didn't know we would enjoy it so much. So sometimes you actually, you do need that as well, just to decompress. I agree with you. And this year is a special year. I've done some work with some holiday companies in the past year or so. And whilst I've said to them, hey, because we've been designing holidays using the structure and the time and how to spend it, how to design time better. But this year, <laughs> you know, where we've just all been stuck home for so long, the idea of being somewhere else and away from that stuff is heaven. And those people who probably go on the beach holiday, but usually don't necessarily just do beach holidays, probably don't just sit there all day long. They probably go do something. Yeah. Mm. Although there's one thing for me, at least. So if I am to write, I have to bore myself to death before. If I'm busy with something, I just cannot have the attention for writing a longer piece of text. And I've noticed that when I am to get myself to write or to edit what I wrote, I just need to get rid of all the distractions, so all the busyness. And sometimes even I have to do a lot of things before, so I know that I don't have to think about them in order to write. So I think that, first of all, there's a continuum of what boredom means in all these things that we are discussing. And the second thing, I also think that there is a continuum on how boredom helps us or distracts us from certain things. This is the rabbit hole I never went into with any of the guests. <laughs> so it's okay, let's pull James into this one. <laughs> I wish I, I, this just has to be my opinion. Generally, my opinions are, oh, it sounds daft, but generally when I say 
stuff from like time and how to spend it. I'd like there to be some backing to it. You know, there's some research that I've come across that supports this idea. So, you know, if I would talk about people being outside and offline, that's because the data is very clear. Um, and when it comes to boredom, I don't know enough about it. I'm with you. I'm the same as you. When I write, I need, I need to have a space, a mental space and a temporal space ahead of me of at least three hours. And I also like to be not in the place where I do the other things, ideally a sort of cafe or a pub or actually I was, I ended up writing at the weekend after a few drinks just because, you know, changing. And when I wrote, when I wrote my first book, I remember writing 10 days straight and then it just, I just ran out. It was the scariest thing ever because it was the Friday about sort of lunchtime. And I didn't write again until the Sunday evening and my family were away. And, um, yeah, I was really frightened that I wouldn't be able to write again. I thought, wow, I've just run out. And I was sort of 25,000 words in and obviously had more to say <laughs> to write the book. And I broke it in the end with um, a bottle of red wine. <laughs> it was terrible. It was crisps and chocolate and red wine. See and how coffee. you become an international best-selling author? Why? <laughs> But not too much, as he mentioned not already. Well, I, can't, I mean, I can't generally write with alcohol and certainly not after drinking it the next day. It was just a change. It's really accepting there's a point where I can't do any more. I need to stop. And that's where I get to most days. That's when I head to the gym or I you know, take a break. I'll just work and work and work, take a break. And then I just, it, my brain stops. It works for me in a similar way, in a sense that when I sit to write, what I notice is that like I start writing and I have like the first shot of writing. Then I usually have a break and tea. Then I have another round of writing and then I'm done. I cannot write anymore. And I know that th this is almost like a cycle that I write. I have the first stop with tea and then the second and no more words coming from me that day. And then I can in start writing. The in, in writing. writing. <laughs> yeah, not in That's <laughs> nice though. Yeah. Well, once you, one of the nice things once you've done some writing, and you, you know, you've written a book, it's been published, is you trust yourself more and you think, that's how I work. And you're accepting it. Whereas I think when you go into it first, you know, initially you're like, what's happening? Why can't I do this? As opposed to saying, I have done something, let it go and try again tomorrow yeah. and accept that. This is why, I don't know if you've come across Alex Sujung King, Kim Pang. No. He's based in Palo Alto. He's written one book called Rest and one book called Shorter. Uh -huh. So Rest is about how we need to rest more and the idea that i think people have about four to five hours of creative work in them per day and shorter is about the four-day work week or the six-hour work day or whatever but basically shorter is the concept um, and if you think about how most people work you know there's lots of breaks and you actually if you pull it back to what do we actually get done we have a certain amount of time that is for the for the writing or the creativity, whatever is your branch of creativity. And then what's nice about that, if you accept that, is you do that at the time that works for you. And I'm a morning person, so that's the time for me. And then all those emails. And if you're not careful... The busyness you kicks in. Yeah, and doing those things that you need to do. You know, mm. send the invoice that you meant to send a month ago or <laughs> deal with your colleague who's done End something that... You, Yeah. I have to send my invoice. Thank you. <laughs> Otherwise, they sit there, right? And if you, you know, if you have an assistant that does it, that's great. And if you're 
If you don't and you need to get yourself a new assistant, that is also good. <laughs> but that's the time to deal with it. Not in your prime creative time is a, yeah. you know. James, do you have some ways to, <laughs> pardon the words that I'm using here, but I hope that the intention will be well understood. It's like, do you have your mechanism of cheating yourself when you are writing a book? Because like, I have a lot. I'm cheating myself that I'm not writing actually a book. I'm writing something else than a book. <laughs> Because like, if I think about writing a book, I'm freaked out. So basically I find ways not to get my brain and my body to actually understand that we are writing a book here. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Have you read On Writing by Stephen King? Yes. <laughs> okay. So when I decided to write a book, I read lots of books on how to write nonfiction mostly, actually. Yeah, but that book, and there was the line, or there's the bit in there where he talks about you're writing the book twice. First time you're writing it for yourself. With the door closed, you're discovering the story and the second time for other people. And I find that such a liberating idea. So I write in pencil. Wow. First of all. Um, and long because hand. Say again. Long hand. Yes, yes, yeah. No, if you know I write shorthand. No. Oh, okay. I write shorthand, so I'm wow. a tr I'm a trained journalist for what of that's course. worth. So I can <laughs> write in T line in shorthand. The problem with writing in T line it's a different part of creativity, and you have to read it back in a difficult way. So I have these pencils that I really like, and they're terrible for the planet. I feel terrible because they have, they're throwaway ones. Mm -hmm. um, but they have this twisty thing. Can you see the twisty yeah, thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it means that you can have the right length. The problem with those pencils, you do the clicker, is they're, for me anyway, they're a bit too long, a bit too short. <laughs> I'm very particular. This is really embarrassing. I don't think I've said this in public. But with these lovely things, and they were 50% off the other day. <laughs> I, I bought 50 pounds worth of these pencils. Oh, Do you gosh. believe that? Seriously, no, wow. That's having yeah, a heavy packet. I mean, my family take them from me too, and they're different colors. They used to be see-through. They were lovely design, but now they're not. But So I write in pencil. And I just let it go in Stuffocation, my first book. There was a bit that ended up in the book about the day my grandfather died. And that was a day where I got drunk and wrote about it. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. I was just writing. I just, I, it didn't feel like I had anything to do with the book. But sometimes it's just that process. And I wrote something for the next book, for Time and How to Spend It. It was about um, an ayahuasca ceremony. I don't know if you've ever... No, we didn't try it, but uh, yeah, I know a lot about it. Yeah. And um, I still have the pieces of paper because I think it was a good piece of writing. It may have been terrible, quite frankly. That's the other thing. Ernest Hemingway, first draft of anything is shit. And I don't like the phrase, but it's so true. Once that you accept that someone like Hemingway, I don't like the old man in the sea, but I do like for whom the bell tolls. But anyway, <laughs> the man is a much better writer than me. It's, I just kind of let it come out. Because writing is editing. Mm -hmm. Good writing is really about good editing. And that's why I don't write very much for the WXO site. And I don't write a blog because most of what I write is rubbish. And it oh, takes come a, on. It makes a long time to make it good. It's sad but true. So. Um, no, I yeah. don't believe that one. You wrote two published. books that are best-selling so i imagine that the first draft is not what you want but maybe it's just the standards that we are talking about here right yeah i've been a journalist for a while and an editor and i i do know yeah i do know what good writing is so there is 
that. But I also think, look, I mean, the bestseller thing is also about catching the wave and being the right time. I do believe that. I mean, I've read some books that have been bestsellers that are terrible <laughs> and other books that are really good that have gone nowhere. So, you know, it's a, it's a combination of things. So the way I put stuff together is I do have huge pieces of paper. We have a whiteboard as well, and I'll kind of put ideas together and I'll write in pencil and I'll just, you know, when you just sort of go up funny alleyways, and they've lost all sense of the structure. But if it's too wooden a structure, so you, you've got to give yourself that opportunity to go there and then break it down. And I'll find myself drawing lines to say, oh, this goes to there, this goes to there. And then I'll type it up. And when I type it up, I semi-stick to the writing that I've done, but I also flow as well in that new zone. And then, oh, it's, oh, it's a painful process. <laughs> but it's... But it's you know it's i love it i'm thank you for getting me to talk about it because at the moment i'm dealing with other things and i'm not near writing and it's um i find it really hard but it's a bit like climbing for me when i go climbing it's really hard but i just love that sense of victory and fate you know failure and success and it's the same uh, yeah i love things that give you the opportunity to fail and to win and to lose it's great yeah Writing, writing feels like winning and losing <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Then you said that you are really busy with WXO these days. Could you tell a bit more about the whole origin of this idea? Because I don't think that you really talked much about it yet. At least I haven't found much. Yeah, that's because I should write it down. In fact, that's the thing that I need to do. But because I'm a very slow writer, <laughs> I haven't done it. But thanks for that question. So. I've never created an organization before, an association like this, but somebody needed to do it. <laughs> That's how I feel <laughs> about it. So it came from a few places because the genesis of something is always, I think, a little messy. So, you know, I can have a sort of clean story, but I think it came from two places. So about, I remember being on a beach in Spain. We go to a particular place in Spain on holiday, but we haven't been for the past couple of years. And we were on a particular beach. And I said, I think the experience economy needs this thing. And I remember, and I actually was there with a, uh, and I was scribbling these things down. This is our favorite beach that we go to. And um, I thought that, you know, that some of the problems that are in the experience economy. So I went to uh, entrepreneurship school. I went to business school, mm -hmm. uh, the University of Cambridge of a business school. And I studied entrepreneurship there after So after suffocation, I set up a startup that didn't really go anywhere, that failed in a quite an, it didn't crash and burn, it more kind of whimpered, to, whimpered out, ran out of money and motivation. And, you know, so I went to business school because I thought, look, this stuff is fun. I'm not very good at it. Maybe I could be better at it. So, you know, and I was learning, but, but slowly. It was definitely a great experience and a transformational experience. And actually, yeah, if, if, you, if you look at the story structure of time and how to spend it, of what you should do in order to make yourself happy, when you learn something, this is from the guy that writes the Dilbert cartoons. He has this lovely line about when you learn how to do something, you put yourself in the basically sort of more in the path of luck. So when luck comes along, you're more likely to hitch a ride with it. And he had this lovely line where he said, every time you learn something, it doubles your chance of success. And then he, <laughs> a few lines later, he says, it doesn't double your chance of success, but it increases and let it go about the double. <laughs> and I think that's a really good point. And if you, yeah. you look at the final S of the stories checklist, which is about status and significance, status, more status means we live longer, happier, healthier lives. And if you learn something that means you can do something, 
that raises your status. The fact that you can sing better makes you a bigger person. You're getting more from your time. Mm -hmm. But also, if you're in a situation, it's a friend's birthday, you might be able to sing the happy birthday song beautifully. And everyone (laughs) will be like, ooh. (laughs) Um, Where was I? Okay, about the business school. Oh, that's it. So I think that the two key problems that underline the WXO, I think, are that one is that the experience industries are too siloed. So the people in the immersive theatre world don't necessarily or haven't till recently talked to the people in user experience or the people in theme parks or the, the people in destination management or the people in city design or the people in park design or in well-being. But all of these people are designing experiences for people. Therefore, they can and they should learn from each other. So that's the first thing. And secondly, is that there are lots of companies who are creating experiences that are very me too. They're copying what other people are doing and they're marketing them. And some of them aren't very good. Mm -hmm. Some of them are very good. Of course, that's, you know, that's the market. What we really need to have is quality assurance for consumers and clients, for people and for businesses. So that when you go to an experience, you have a sense already if it's going to be any good, but also what we can do here is, we can discourage people from launching rubbish experiences Mm -hmm. and we can encourage people to create better experiences. Take that famous fire festival as a really great example. Now, if there was certification, quality assurance for people, you would know in advance if they put in place the right things to make that a good event. I mean, there's other complications with that particular thing. And the problem with this is if somebody goes to an experience and it's not very good they will be burned by the experience economy and therefore they will spend less money in the experience economy because the great thing about material goods rather than experiences and one of the reasons why materialism will stay with us is that when you buy a thing you know what you're getting there's a certainty to it when you go on a three-week vacation in a camper van you don't know what's going to happen so packaged material goods in particular but packaged things give people certainty reduces friction and therefore commerce so if we can reduce the friction of people wondering is this going to be good isn't this going to be good is this for me is this not for me then we can speed up the shift to experientialism so the WXO for me it's about sort of what the B Corps are doing Mm-hmm. for companies that are you know that care about people and the planet as well as profit or what a decanter magazine does for wines or zagat for restaurants or michelin for restaurants or uh, in the uk we have the soil association but but a standards body that's mm-hmm. that's essentially okay. it and this was gosh this was probably what 2017 2018 and i took the idea to different people and nobody liked it Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, uh, people are like, yeah, yeah, no, no, not really. But the same happened with Stuffocation. So I self-published Stuffocation first up in oh. 2013. It was rejected in 2011 and 2012 in London and New York. 75 publishers said, well, the big feedback, the feedback that came back was great idea. He's wrong. Serious? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, wow. so the people who published the Tipping Point, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, of course, yeah. the Tipping Point, right? So they spent a month with it, and they were sending emails about. And I, I love. There was this break. I didn't even know what this stuff was. I was new to the, you know, the publishing yeah. industry. This, it's getting great reads here, which means that lots of people are reading it and they think it's good. 
but I didn't know what that meant because like, you know, my agent would forward this to me. I was getting <laughs> great reads. And that got to the acquisition meeting. And the acquisition meeting is where they all get together and decide whether they're going to buy a book, a book or not. Uh-huh. Um, Abby, you'll know this anyway. Sorry. It's okay. It's, yeah, just, yeah. You know, Our yeah. listeners um, don't necessarily have to know this. So at their acquisition meeting, that was the feedback. And it also happened in London. Uh, there was another time where they actually said they were going to buy the book and they were going to publish the book. And then the guy who owned the company came back from holiday the next week and said, and the same, just said, it's a really nice, idea. it's just not true. Huh. And I think I was ahead of the curve and I, yeah. you know, I'm a trend forecaster. So that I should be ahead of the curve. That's, my, that's <laughs> in my business, right? So that suggests that I'm not bad at that side of my job. It's just um, that you, you suffer from the perils of that job, right? Well, do you know, I was talking to a speaker's agent the other day and this guy just said, uh, you know, futurists, they're 10 a penny. Mm-hmm. Everyone's doing it. And I'm like, wow, because... When I was originally doing this in 2004 and then onwards, it was a really new thing, which is quite nice. It's not my main focus of what I do anymore. I mean, I, that company still runs, but that's not you know, my focus is experiences, not things, because I think this is the future. And what's actually just, you know, there are other books coming out around this area now, and I think that it will take off. So that's why I think that, back, sorry to answer your question. <laughs> yeah. was, It's a lovely I was, answer. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> But then also, I, you know, I worked for the British government, for the Department for International Trade as a um, sector specialist in the experience economy. Uh-huh. And so I did some work from them on what the strategy should be. And I said, look, they're in the business of how do we promote British companies around the world? And I said, look, that's great. But what we should do here is grow the category. Why don't we make a global organization And then we can identify and grow this idea of the experience economy. And then we can also identify where Britain is particularly good, but also maybe where we're not so good. So, you know, you think about the escape room industry in, um, I think it's in Latvia or Lithuania, but also in the Netherlands and in Germany, for example. And you think about the haunted house stuff that goes on in the States. And UX, obviously, if you work for the British government, of course, you want to say that it all happens in London, but that's just, <laughs> there's a big world out there where other people are doing great things. You know, you think about some of the work that you've done, some of that great stuff, Aga, in terms of those stories before and after. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm just thinking about that article you wrote, a brilliant piece <laughs> about how you ask people to talk about how they felt about a brand and they, therefore you could understand the transformation they might go through some work that you're doing, you know, measuring the impact of experience science. Awesome, right? So the Brits don't have a monopoly on this. Turns out there's other people that do this. That's the thing. <laughs> Them, yeah, those people. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, no, it just makes the world more interesting, right? That's the thing. And then, and um, I don't know how much work you've done with governments, but sometimes think oh, that's a nice idea. But does that mean they do anything about it? Hmm. <laughs> and then, truth be told, the pandemic hit. The time and how to spend it had come out and I was busy. It was wonderful. I was going to the States and Dubai. I flew first class for the first time wow. ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I drank three glasses of champagne before we'd even taken off. Um, <laughs> this is time and how to spend it. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. I still gave a really good talk the next day. I spent the whole next day because I wasn't giving a talk till the evening. I spent mm. the whole next day working out like running and just like in the gym. Because I, I never drink before uh, giving a talk. I, yeah. You know, I just want to be, you know, on, on it. And uh, just spent the whole day getting the alcohol out of my system. <laughs> so I give a really good talk. So, you know, Time and House Bennett had, had taken off, it had come out, it was doing well. And I was 
doing work for different companies, designing experiences. The National Portrait Gallery here in London, for example, teaching their curators and their uh, learning experience people how to design better experiences. To be frank, it was super fun. I was really enjoying it. Then the pandemic hit, boom. Yeah. <laughs> and I suddenly wasn't on a plane going to interesting places, giving interesting talks. And um, I thought maybe I'll do this thing. Mm. Maybe I'll do this thing. And I started to talk to some people like you, innovators. And I did have a lot of support from Richard Parry, who's my boss at the Department for International Day. He's head of the Experience Economy, very small group there. And Joe I spoke to Joe Pine as well. It resonated for people. It resonated. Finally, that these two huh? problems Yeah. And here we are today. Yeah. You know, it's er, it's an early stage and it's really interesting, the different bits of support from companies and people and people that really get it already. I have the same feeling about suffocation. I have the same kind of conversations with people and I get the same kind of, this is the right thing to be doing at the right time. So we'll see. When Aga asked, what is the reason for this organization to exist? You said about this quote unquote, quality assurance. How do you imagine it will unfold? You're absolutely right. And so, for example, we have working groups to solve problems. Again, this is all super new. So it's all yeah, kind yeah. of evolving as we go. Actually, Aga, you'll be receiving an email soon about the women in experience group. Oh, um, nice, <laughs> I had a conversation with Nasia and Sheena uh, mm -hmm. about this because we want to make sure this is a platform for both 50% of the human population <laughs> and men are very quick to put their hand up and say, oh, I want to give a talk at the campfires and I want to make sure that we represent everyone. And the other thing is about a working group for certification for this quality assurance. What we're doing is stealing from people cleverer <laughs> of course but I'm really like an glad. artist yeah, yeah I, no yeah. doubt but i just cannot even try to guess what it takes ah. to scale it out so it actually takes you know root and it starts working that's a really good question and so the first thing here i think is to create a system that is robust and it's worth saying here as well that I, and i was looking at some old work where I was using this seven rule checklist of how to design time, which you can use as a seven rule checklist to design experiences. And you can give a score against each of these seven things. And I, I did this, I ran this business where we were, we were getting people to give experience gifts rather than stuff. And we were getting them to measure these things. I mean, before I had um, time and how to spend it, you know, I was using uh, self-determination theory. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of like, well, does that increase your competence, your mastery? Does it give you a chance for autonomy, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And I was quite conscious that it's all well and good James Woolman having a kind of like, this is what is a good, because I've, you know, I've talked to these scientists and these psychologists and created this, but actually there are other ways of looking at this. So I think in order for it to be acceptable and accepted and to be the benchmark that I think it can be. It needs to be co-created by people in the experienced economy. And this is why the WXO needs, doesn't need to exist for this, but is a good forum for... Right. So we have a mix of experienced design professors and practitioners, and if they can come together to create something that they disagree about the least, 
You know, we don't get agree on everything. <laughs> Joe Pine's got some interesting takes on this, for example, and I think he's got some really relevant points. If you look at the way B Corp do this, they have 200 questions mm-hmm. in order to be certified as a B Corp um, company. And it's worth pointing out that I think what we're looking to do here at first is to certify experiences rather than companies. This is all to be mm-hmm. to be decided. Yeah, this, at the it's moment, really tricky, yeah. Yeah, and and you, thing, you, you are probably facing different dangers if you go one way or another, because like certification is always a little bit of a danger zone, right? Yeah, it is. But it's been done. It's been done in loads of subjective areas like restaurants and food and wine. And we are taking something that is incredibly subjective, i.e. experience. And actually, you now I say that I think we will do it for companies and we will do it for experiences because there are different things. And one is really about the process that a company goes through now it doesn't need to follow everyone has their different approach of course but at the same time for example i talk about the b rules in my work beginnings extremes and endings which is the peak end rule updated because it turns out that beginnings are very important too so i talk about the b rules and i say that i was talking to a client earlier and they quoted the b rules to me i thought wow (laughs) This is working. It's memorable. I don't think this guy can remember anything else from the stories checklist, but he was like the (laughs) B-rules. So if you know that a company understands the importance of beginnings in terms of the memory they're going to create and the importance of endings and the importance of extremes and whether they're super high good moments or tough bad moments, and bad moments is the wrong term, challenging moments that kind of impact you, then if you know they're aware of that, you might be more likely to trust them when they create an experience that they've at least thought about those elements of it. In the same way, we try and give an example. In the book, I talk about the difference between junk food and food that's really good for you. And I think that if you go to McDonald's and you eat that food, you're not looking for nutrition. You're looking for something to go in your mouth when you're drunk. Comfort. Sort yeah, of. comfort. You're looking, yeah. yeah, you're looking for a certain thing, but you're not looking for nutrition. That's not your focus. Um, Unless you go for a salad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's not get into that. And, it, you know, in terms of how you spend your time, there are junk food ways of spending your time and there are superfood ways of spending your time. And if you know a, a company cares about the ingredients, we could think about this certification as saying, do you shop in the right markets? Do you pick up the apples and, you know, and check that they're ripe before Mm -hmm. you buy those apples? I think that's the kind of thing that we're doing. We're kind of saying these are the ingredients that the social sciences have shown will lead you to be more happy, creative, curious, successful. And I'm actually going to throw in there, and I go, this hasn't been announced yet, but I may have mentioned it. There's a guy called Theo Edmonds who's just joined us. Uh And um, he runs this wonderful thing called the... UPOP, underappreciated people of purpose, under un, un something. I'm, I'm going to have to remember what that is. But he's also the dean at a of transdisciplinary art in the University of Colorado, uh-huh. and he has some new research that shows that some experiences make people more curious and creative and productive, but other types of experiences make them less creative, curious, and productive. Now you think about what that means from a personal point of view and from a governmental point of view. Governments really, especially in an era when AI 
and robots, they can do the simple stuff. But where does a human fit in? Okay, if you want to be valuable, you need to be productive, you need to be creative, and you want to be curious. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you think about like luxury taxes or sugar taxes, experiences that reduce your creativity, your curiosity, and therefore your productivity should be taxed mm -hmm. higher than experiences that increase your creativity, curiosity, and productivity. And that's the kind of thing that I mean when I mean moving away from the economist to the psychologists, because I'm so excited about this. You can probably tell, can't you? So Theo, I think is going to be presenting this in, I think, October. And I think it provides, I'm going to say us, but the experience economy with a document to take to, I've been to 10 Downing Street, which is where like, like the prime minister does his work, her work, whoever's in charge, once after stuffocation. And I talked to him about what experientialism meant for policy. And we were talking about doing something on loneliness and also put together a proposal of something that could be done. And then Brexit came along and that whole part of the government, they all lost their jobs. Anyway, and I think that's the kind of thing that we, the WXO and people in the WXO, can take to government and say, this stuff matters. You think experiences are, oh, you know, UX, so that a technology firm can make more money. You think it's UX, so that a bank has a better customer service. You think that an immersive experience is what someone does at the weekend. This impacts how creative and curious the people in your country are. This stuff matters. And coming back to certification, sorry, I've wandered there. From the point of view of the experience and the point of view of the company, if they have bothered to be aware of this. So in terms of the company certification, I think we can look at if these people are aware of this, at least they're likely to think about doing it. In terms of the experience itself, and this is where it gets really interesting and tricky. So some quality assurance stuff is about the process. So an experience could get the certification based on the process that was gone through to make it. Mm -hmm. Because the problem with an experience, as you know, Aga in particular, <laughs> it's co-created. So you could create the best. I'm going to a, a new immersive Batman themed restaurant of a review with one of the WXO co-founders next Tuesday. And I mean, I'll probably be in a good mood, but that day, my wife and I could have had a fight. One of my kids could have fallen over in school. All sorts of things could have happened. So I may be in a terrible frame of mind and come out and say, well, it didn't make me very happy. Yeah. Of course, incredibly subjective. And I don't know the answer. If I can just carry on with this for a moment. So we currently have, I think, about 50 questions in the document. One of the experience design professors, Matt Durden. At, Who is um, a guest on this season too. Ah, <laughs> he's him. He is awesome he too, is. right? He's yeah. awesome. I mean, he's pointed out that the structure is really poor. And I just wrote <laughs> back an email saying, you're absolutely not poor, just because, you know, Matt is a very positive person. So are we going to think about, and I said, we will do that and we will structure that, that out. But also Ben Honeycutt, who is also awesome at University of Iowa, is now going to be using the list that we've created in his grad class ah. with his graduates at the University of Iowa from this semester. So I'm really happy about that, actually. And Ben's been involved with and Brian Hill and Yei Fang at the Atlantic University in Florida. So there's a bunch of people been involved so far. It's been very much that I need to bring more people in and then bring some more practitioners in. But I, and I think we need to aim at um, 
I, I don't know how many questions will be appropriate, but then also, and I will stop talking about the certification, and this is Joe Pine's point, is that with cars, they're different. You know, sometimes you need a camper van, sometimes you want a sports car, sometimes you want a pickup truck. There are different cars that do different things in the same way, different experiences, you know, comparing experiences, a, a user experience for a product versus an immersive experience or a holiday experience, very, you know, very different. And we have different expectations, but just as you can use a framework on cars or, you know, forms of transport to say, is this any good or not? I think we can do it with experiences and we can still say this is good for this thing this is good for this thing but part of this work may well be educating consumers to figure out the kind of experience consumer they are too i'll stop there <laughs> no that's fascinating. no that's really yeah. really interesting when you were talking about the certification process i was thinking that there might be a different way to approach the companies and the experiences themselves and for me, the experiences themselves is much like Michelin guide, right? So like you have very different restaurants. You can have a fast food place, which is fast food in a sense that it's just a, a quick bite restaurant versus like, you know, super poshy place. And they all have their purpose and they have their goal. And therefore you judge them within a context that they appear. So like the whole story about Jiro Dreams of Sushi, the film that was released a few years ago, this is like a Japanese three-star Michelin restaurant at the Tokyo metro station. This is a very different thing from going to a fantastic hotel where you eat 12-course meal or something like this. So in a way, I think that by setting up frameworks, and there are frameworks, like you mentioned Matt's book, is about the frameworks on how to think about experiences. And Joe is also talking about it a lot. I always felt that there was a bit of a judgment, whether that one is better than the other. But I always think that, like, for example, escapism is worse than transformation. In a situation of escapism, you just escape your real life into the different world. Versus with transformation, you change and you become a, a better version of yourself. And then I was thinking that, for example, escape rooms, a form of escapism, they allow you to explore your different self. So in a way, they are transformational mm. if they are well designed. It's just that they use means of escapism as a way to get you to experience something that maybe you would never dare to do otherwise. So I think that, it, again, it's first of all continuum and very nuanced. But if there are broad categories and we can get people to go and experience these things, who have deep knowledge about how to assess experiences, much like the Michelin reviewers go to the restaurants, that becomes very interesting for experiences, not for companies. I agree with you that companies, it's a different story, it's a process, it's a, a way of approaching things, a, a way of paying attention to things. So I can imagine here that, for example, a lot of companies talk about that customer experience is important, but when you really look deeper into what they do, uh, it's more like a makeup on a peak, right? <laughs> Show me the decision process and then you will see what's Yeah, exactly. Important. But I wanted to check something with you, Aga, because you said that some experiences may be perceived as better ones, mm -hmm. like the transformational versus the escapism. And then you said the escapism could be also transformational. Yes. So in a way, you reconfirm that one is better than the other. But I have a different question here, mm -hmm. because what I understand, those transformational ones are sometimes seen as a kind of a peak. So 
how many transformations can a human survive within one week? I mean, <laughs> please, maybe one. And you want more than one good experience every course, week. So absolutely. just like with these cars, I mean, yeah, we have a camper van, but you know, most of the year it's just parked here. And because it's an old and was inexpensive, that's why we own it. But sensible thing is to rent it. You are absolutely right. So what I try to say is that I don't want to put judgment on these things. And an right. escape room can be transformational thing, but can be just fun. Yeah, it's exactly. just like, you know, just going with friends and spending time just being immersed in a game. But still, I saw very good escape rooms and I saw very bad escape rooms. Mm. And regardless of the framework that you go to, if you go and see escape rooms, you understand which of them are giving a thrill of challenging yourself enough and not too much in a sense that well, you... that is really the subjective part now. Oh yeah, right? definitely. But going to a restaurant and then trying a meal is also a subjective judgment. That's what yeah, comparison. Yeah, sorry for stealing this show <laughs> from you. I mean, it's supposed I to be about I you. No, it's really interesting here what you're saying. I've never been to a bad escape room, but that's because I've given talks at escape room conferences and therefore I know people in the escape room business. Uh. And so I say, what are the good ones to go to? <laughs> so I've been to some, I mean, terrific ones and I'm rubbish at them, but I've enjoyed I I want to pick up on two of those things you said. One is about how an experience allows you to explore a different self. I think there's something really interesting in that. And I think in, about this, this growth of experientialism, I, I think. So I have this other idea that from 1750 to 2050 will be seen as the industrious ages when we worked really hard. And I think that, you know, the creation of clock time and the industrial revolution has been incredible, but it's also made us work very hard, much harder than I believe. And the impression I have of how people worked in the past and I, you know, I'm a, you know, I've studied some history, but I'm also a bit of an amateur historian. I look at that and I think it seems pretty clear they didn't work quite as hard. And I think that with the machines coming along and doing more things, that we will start to work less. Uh, and this is an unfortunate time to be alive in some ways, because honestly, I really think that the generations later will look back and go, whoa, those guys worked hard, you know, but oh, yeah. whatever. There are worse times to be alive, I'm sure of that too. And so this idea of allowing you to explore a different self is such an interesting idea because the, if you think about how I'm just wondering here so just mm. and I really want to come back to the judgment things I thought that was really interesting too but you, you made me think of something so if you think about people used to get a job and they have a job for life mm -hmm. I mean and you know you think about the surname that is the most common surname almost everywhere, I think, is either Baker or the um, or the, Bla the Blacksmith. Oh, yeah, well, Blacksmith because yeah. they never killed the Blacksmith. So in Portuguese, it's Pereira, I think, because they would never kill the Blacksmiths if they came and took over and, you know, the, the invaders, because you need those guys to make the weapons. And if somebody was a Blacksmith, you know what the sun would do. You know, this is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is how things worked. And the, the next person in line, so you'd have generations doing the same things. And then I think, I'm playing here, and this is not huge expertise on the, the history of the 20th century, but people would get a job and it would be a job for life. You would do that job until, you know, you were you done retire. and you'd retire. Exactly. And you think about how people chop and change their different jobs nowadays and think about music as well. When I was a kid, you were into one type of music and you were allowed that one, but you couldn't like the other one. It wasn't acceptable. If you're into, you know, hip hop music, you couldn't like rock music. That was way too different. You had to, have to be a set, but now you can chop and change. And I think that that is a, a playing with who we are. I was thinking about what you said, Walkash, about how many transformations you can do in a week. But I wonder about how 
the mini transformations that we make. You know, when you go out for a, a beer with friends, you're a certain kind of person. When you go for a run, you you know, we, we almost, clothes give us an identity as well and places give us an identity. But this idea that experiences give you a chance to really explore is very interesting to me. I think this, we will have a more, this is going to sound weird, a psychologically rich era. There's that chap, Hyun Shui, I think I'm saying his last name properly. He's at uh, Delft uh, Technical University, I think it is. And he and I have had a conversation about expanding, and this is work he's doing, so I'm borrowing from him, expanding people's range of emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you only have a certain number of terms for emotions, then those are the ones you can use. And it's the same with wine tasting. So when you provide somebody with the wheel and you kind of tell them it tastes of cigars or whatever, then they start to notice those things. So one of the submissions, but part of this mission, because the, the mission of WXO is not only doing those things, you know, uh, that I talked about, but also promoting this idea. And I think experientialism is good for people. It, it puts the, the, the nexus, the locus, but the key place for where our happiness is, it's back inside ourselves. Materialism says happiness is out there. Mm -hmm. It's an external thing you can go get and buy this thing. You, it, it's out there. Whereas with experiences, you get happiness through doing, through being as well, through being and doing. So it brings it back here or make us happier. But then we start to play, if, let's say, if you can expand the range of emotional responses you have to an experience, it makes the experience a richer thing. In the same way that wine is a really good example, you can just drink red wine, it's fine. Or you can really think about it. And by approaching it in that way, you get much more from the same wine. And we'll do the same with experiences. And that idea, I'm coming, it's what you said about allowing you to explore a different self. I really like that idea. And I don't know what to do with it, as you can probably tell. I look at, you know, the, the research going into uh, things like psilocybin, magic mushrooms are clearly that's a way of exploring our mental universe. I don't know what the right term is, but exploring who we can be. You know, you think about if you, if you do a run, a triathlon, you become a triathlete. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put that down there. I think there's something to, I want to say what you said about the judgment thing. I really have issues when people make judgments about the type of experiences as well. And for me, the example is, is a roller coaster. A roller coaster does not make me a better person, but whoa, <laughs> I love them. I love roller coasters. They're super fun. And so if you think about Bob and Matt's uh, structure of experiences about, I'm trying to think what it is now, memorable. Meaningful uh, and transformational. Yeah. And there's one before that, which is just like fun. Yeah. Fun really has its place. Totally. Because, you know, if you get to your deathbed and you haven't had much fun, but it's all been meaningful, there. Yawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the different selves, in the book that I'm writing uh, currently, I'm talking about having like a committee in your head. So it's not one James or one Aga or one Wukash. Like you said, you are James the runner, James the climber, James the WXO person, James the writer, and so on and so forth. And all of them want to have some space. Did you steal it from the Big Bang Theory? Of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. And, and I don't, it was a TV show. TV uh, show. And a really show, geeky yeah. one. At <laughs> yeah. You know, I know of it. I like it. Have you seen um, Inside Out? Long time ago. Okay. Yeah. That has a sort of committee of people in your exactly, head. Exactly. It's the same concept. And then I started exploring it more from a perspective of having the version of yourself that you want to be versus the version of yourself that you don't want to be. 
Although then when I was working on it, I realized that every version of yourself serves a purpose. So how about stop putting judgment on it? One of my agas in my brain is the Agatha judge. <laughs> so I said, okay, Agatha judge, <laughs> don't judge. <laughs> just, just ease it. I mean, it's probably about balances in the end. I mean, it's not that you don't want that person in your head. Right? Totally, yeah. But then I find that wrong. Yeah, but but then when you expand it into those people that you are, and some of them want safety, and some of them want danger, and some of them want fun, and some of them want meaning. It's not one or the other. It's not like the whole thing that when you have Maslow pyramid. By the way, I listened to a podcast with a person who said that uh, Maslow never drew a pyramid. It was never a pyramid for him. It was like a combination of things. That could have been a podcast I was on because I would say that because oh, I yeah. have the 1954 paper and it's worth taking a look at. So yeah, I won't get yeah. Into it. Well, I, I, actually, <laughs> I read this one, but I was thinking that maybe later in life he made it into a pyramid, but apparently he did not. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. It's a, and, and modern psychologists don't refer to it, you know, no. because it doesn't work. Above that first layer of safety and security, it's just not clean. Exactly. Then when you think about it from a perspective of inclusion rather than a reduction, so you are multiple people and you have qualities of this and that. This thing is more important at some point and the other thing is more important at other moments in time. Suddenly, I think that it enriches the perspective that we can get on ourselves. And therefore, when you think about experiences and the assessment of experiences, it becomes much less judgmental in a sense, okay, it should fall into those very clean category. But you say, okay, like it has certain qualities that make it a good or a bad one. But what you get out of it, which part of you gets fun out of it or meaning out of it or whatever else, that's a different story. And maybe we should not judge that at all. But you can also try to design for that. I mean, if that model holds, right? Yeah. The example that you just, we go for like beers with friends, right? And around the, like a second glass, you realize it's going to be more than two. <laughs> and then you know the judge will be disappointed in the morning. But, you know, the fun guy is really kind of, yeah, let's play to the fun guy tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And if you prepare like this, maybe tomorrow the judge won't be so harsh on you if you accepted the consequences up front or something like that. There's a psychologist in um, the States. There's two of them, actually. And they talk about, people obviously think about time in quite a linear way, but if you can take a more kind of helicopter view and they encourage this, I think it's a really interesting point of view, then you can see it as part of your overall mix. And I say that because I think that's the thing about the hero's journey is a really use, useful metaphor for life. When you're going through something that's difficult, you can kind of raise up and look down and think, okay, this is probably where I'm supposed to be right now. This is the path of that. Walkash, I want to take up what you just said about designing for those people. Because I'm wondering about how, you know how an experience is more immersive and engaging and fun if it engages the five senses. So what if we were to think about, I don't know how big the committee is that you're thinking of here, <laughs> Aga, but let's say the committee is, let's say everyone's allowed 11 people like a football team or something, I don't know. <laughs> if you can engage that part of you, you know, there are some things that you do that is really fun, but you know, it's not all the things that you do. So I was a travel journalist some years ago and um, really, really appealed to the James who wanted to go places. I mean, really did. But the intellectual part of me that wanted to be challenged with things that are difficult, it wasn't challenged at all. And maybe I should have just taken a book with me 
or written a book. I had a friend who was a writer as well. So whereas I was writing about the destinations and after a while, it's really boring because you're just writing about, you know, <laughs> hotels and stuff. And yeah, it's you, like you, a, writing a little encyclopedia, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're trying to make it interesting. And I went there and whatever. And I'm just thinking about how, you know, think about like chess boxing or and I, I'm thinking about as well in terms of the experience economy, in terms of the innovation that we'll see. And I still haven't yet seen this. I've been expecting it for a longer time. If you take the escape room idea and then you take the Tough Mudder idea, I haven't seen that mashed up yet. And that surprises me because one is obviously mental, really. I mean, there are some physical challenges in some kind of escape rooms, but generally it's a kind of mental, can we solve this puzzle? And Tough Mudder, by definition, is a kind of, you know, physically challenging thing. And chess boxing is a really good example of where you can do those two things. You know, I've never played it myself. I'm not very good at chess and there's no way I'd box. But anyway... You know, I'm coming back to this idea of you could design around that committee of different people. Mm -hmm. huh. On a macro scale, for me, that the assessment of experiences, as I do it for myself, when I look at them consciously from a design perspective, is whether they made me a better person or a worse person. And if they made one of my committee members in my head a better version of itself, I'm super happy about it. And it can be, you know, like Aga, who is a better judge, you know, it's just or a better critic. Like she's not criticizing everything. She's just criticizing the right stuff. Or it can be Aga the runner or whatever. But there are experiences that make me feel like I don't want to be that person. Recently, I had a shopping experience, which was like really rubbish. And I got really upset and I was like really complaining about it. And of course, you get into a discussion when people tell you, okay, did you read the rules and everything? And of course, nobody does these things. And that was particularly scummy operation. Yeah. As I was going through this whole situation, and I, typically when I get into these situations, I explore it from an experiential perspective. So I get myself very consciously into them and see, okay, like, what does it do to me and how I can use it for other things <laughs> or hmm. talk about it because it's always a very good material for presentations, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> anyway, but as I was going through this, I thought, okay, it is making me to become Aga I don't want to be. I am not quarrelsome and I don't like these kind of things. And I felt like they provoked me to a point when I really wanted to go for a fight with them. So... This is for me the macro perspective. And then when you dig into the positive part, so like the good experiences, I see, okay, like these agas are really happy about that experience. Oh, this is very interesting because this is more into either fun or memorable or meaningful or transformational experience. So the, the model that you mentioned of Bob and, and Matt, and they can be better because they are more engaging or more immersive in a way. So like I get into them wholesomely rather than just partially. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I can take different lenses at them. However, the first judgment is, okay, like, does it make me a better person? Does it make me a worse person than I am today? A good consensus would be a sensible kind of go home now or really go for it. The committee will probably let you stay up for four or five or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're thinking the committee will arrive at a compromise. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, anyway, what I want to ask you is... If you think about yourself today, because the theme for this season is down the rabbit hole. And I think that we went down the many rabbit holes in this conversation. If you were to think about the rabbit hole that you find yourself in these days, what would it be? 
I am right in the middle of the rabbit hole at the moment of getting the WXO going. Mm-hmm. And from that point of view, there are so many things to be done. And as you can probably tell, I have a big ambition for what it can do and what I think it should do. I really think it should be the B Corp slash World Economic Forum for the Experience Economy. As Joe said to me, it's only organisation centred on the experience economy. And that gives us this kind of almost like mycelium, mycelium, you know, the kind of fungus lives under the ground, all the trees come out of it. Yep. And I think that we can support and be involved with different parts. You know, the different vertical sectors have their thing, but I think we can do something pretty important and build this idea of experientialism, which I think is really good. But it's at a point and it's, it's been bootstrapped by me. There is no external funding. And that has some interesting implications in that, obviously, if I take my focus away from my other work, my focus is all on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pandemic, uh, my old work was keynotes and workshops in the real world. Mm. And so obviously the pandemic was not super fantastic for that. And, no. But it's, it's really interesting watching the signs come in So we only opened for people to join as founding members in July Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of people joined. August has been quiet because, of course, even even though Americans say they're working, nothing gets done in August. (laughs) Just nothing happens. But actually today, first day, somebody joined first thing and a guy who does a lot of great work in the immersive world, actually, and his company and uh, produces secret cinemas, works and all sorts. So really happy about that. So that the rabbit hole I'm in is the WXO rabbit hole. I'm juggling way too many things. I'm working with somebody, a management consultant to create a, sorry, this is really boring, but you asked me this question, to do the spreadsheet to manage how the money comes in and where it goes and to that kind of tracking stuff. And I've got some couple of really good advisors. And then I'm working with how many people at the moment to try to figure out how to get the videos done from season one, because we had 19 campfires and 15 of those were videos and we've got one that's produced and I, I really like it but I have a friend who works in TV who is going to look at that with me tonight wow. and uh, I really thought that we would have like a I think we might call it XQ like experience quarterly and we'd have a publication from the campfires and that is proving it's, it's, it's just managing different you know a designer here a designer there and finding if the right person etc yeah, and then, you know, there's so much content that still hasn't been published because I want to look at it first to make sure I'm happy with it. Yeah, so I'm in the WXO rabbit hole at the moment. You know, I've had so many conversations. I have a whole folder of people that, actually, there's a guy I need to get back to. But, you know, there's, you know, there's people in Canada who want to talk to me, and then I have a conversation with somebody in New Zealand, and it's a load of French people joined, and I'm really happy about that because I was concerned that it would be very Anglophile and it would mm-hmm. be too Anglophile. I really didn't want that to happen. But I'm also so aware of the, you know, we've, I think we've got people in 15 different countries who've joined as paying founding members. You know, if you include also the co-founders, we're looking at even more, I think it's like 20, 25 countries. So there's a thing going on here. But I'm really conscious that we have no one in Brazil, no companies in Spain at the moment, in, in Mexico, because I want representation. And then mm-hmm. I want to build a very simple ambassador program. So each sector in each country should have someone who brings us what's going on there so that we can 
you know, I think we should really have an index of evolution because different countries at different points in terms of their journey in this experience economy. So, you know, as a really good example, immersive theatre, which is really taking off at the moment. You know, there's this wonderful thing called Hotel Wonderland launching in Amsterdam. I think it's in October or November and it looks really awesome. It's a big space. I was in contact with one of the chaps there the other day and he was saying that really this is, you know, it's a secret cinema type of thing. And there's one that's also in Paris, which is, I think it's next month, is it? You may know this better than me. And there's this new place opening in London called Immersive London, which is, mm. is it 32,000? It's got a huge space for experiential stuff to happen. It's, it's such an exciting field to be in. And I feel <laughs> like there's 3,000 things to do. Wow. And... I'm trying to work out whether I should really raise money so that I can just start to do a lot of these things that I want to do. And if I'm just taking on too much myself. And so that is a a thought that I've been having quite a lot, but we'll, yeah, next few months will be really important. Uh, We have 63 individuals and companies in the WXO Black Book, which I haven't set live yet. Um, Thank you for your patience, Aga. (laughs) You and Andrew O'Loughlin in... Melbourne have both been very patient. Uh, no, no worries. No worries. <laughs> yeah. But James, when I'm looking at the work that you are doing with WXO and the initiatives that take off one after another, I already wrote that to you, but I'm so impressed with everything that you are doing. And I just cannot phantom that it won't work. There's so much positive energy and there's so much engagement from so many people from different places. And I think that this network that you've created already with us as the founding members is such a such a powerful network for anything, for jobs, for knowledge, for, you know, conversations. I am so honored that I am a part of it, really, and really think that... I remember one other, this she mentioned to me when she got the invitation. <laughs> I mean, she was really... Yeah. Well, I was one of the... Jen Queer, and, and we, you know, you sent that to me in an email. I quoted that to my wife a number of times. And there are times when I'm like, oh, thank you. I really appreciate you sending that to me because it's, uh, you know, with anything, there are times you're like, am I just like, you know, <laughs> and it's uh, very encouraging. I really appreciate it. So what I can say here is that I very, very much recommend both your books, Staffocation and Time and How We Spend It to all our listeners. But if you were to think about the book, not necessarily about the experience economy or experiences in general, but a book that gets people into rabbit holes or out of the rabbit holes. It, and it can be fiction. It doesn't have to be nonfiction. What okay. would it be? So I keep some of my favorite books next to my bed. They range from sort of nonfiction. I read Herodotus, you know, <laughs> the histories, but I studied classics first degree. But there's this book... And it is the Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England. Oh, wow. Really? By a historian. Now, obviously, I'm English, so I'm particularly interested. But if you look at how people lived in medieval time, for me, it's really interesting. Because when I read it, it's sort of like, so, you know, there are things that weren't so different. Some of, some of their diet was fascinating. Is well-written but it's also understanding how their culture was quite different to ours and obviously, and how things have changed in the past 700 years. <laughs> I love that. I, I read that. I read comedy too. Have you read David Simon? He wrote The Wire, which TV show. 
No, no. I, I never watched it. I watched uh-huh. one episode. I thought it was awful, but other people love it. I, I often don't get TV shows. And he's written this book called Homicide, which is where he's, he's a nonfiction writer. He spent a year in the homicide department of the, I think it's the Baltimore police uh, guys. And it is, for a nonfiction writer, I go, it's exquisite writing. Wow. It's the detailed journalism's great, but he even, he drops into, and as great writers do, Every now and again, he comes out of the narrative and drops into a bit of sort of philosophy and point mm-hmm. of view, and it is just masterful. Oh, I'm buying this one right away. <laughs> Have you got Will Storr's The Science of Storytelling? Yes. I mean, you won't read it again. It's very good. Gladwell, What the oh. Dog Saw, for quite incredible writing. I love that. I also, <laughs> maybe this is cheating, I watched The Office, the American version. Uh-huh. And I think I'm on my third or fourth time around. And it still makes me laugh. <laughs> my, my wife thinks there's something weird. About, but she makes me watch other stuff. You know, it gets to the end of the night. If it gets to sort of 9.30, 10 and I'm still working, I need to stop. That will often involve an episode or two of The Office and then reading. And it still makes me laugh. Anyway, so yes, sorry. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a beautiful list to go away with from this episode. So James... Thank you so much. And I sincerely do hope that this is a beginning of a conversation rather than an end of it. And that you will be willing to come again because I'm just laughing that we kind of started with maybe two questions from what I wrote and then off we went. <laughs> and we are almost two hours later now. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. It's fun. You've made me really think, I mean, some of them in particular about this idea of allowing people to explore a different self. Because that's nice. Thank you, Batso. I look forward to coming back. James, thank you once again. Uh, really, <laughs> thank, thank you. Yeah. So much fun. Cash, really I... nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, you too. I, I, hope hope to, I really hope to meet you in person. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. I've got a startup. I've got no time. <laughs>